From the scenic Santa Monica Mountains overlooking the Pacific Ocean, this is HRL's History of the Future podcast. Our in-depth interviews feature prominent scientists past and present from the world-famous HRL laboratories in Malibu, California. Now, join our host, Sean Mason, with today's guest, John Neer. In 2008, John Neer retired from an industry career of over 50 years in commercial, military, and international aerospace programs in which he specialized in satellite guidance, navigation, and control systems. Upon his retirement, the National Reconnaissance Office, which is the U.S. intelligence agency in charge of reconnaissance satellites, awarded John the prestigious Superior Service Medal for superior leadership and technical acumen in the development and operation of multiple NRO programs. Specifically, his engineering expertise advanced the state of the art for satellite communication, imagery, and ground processing capabilities in operation. John started his professional career at Hughes Aircraft Company in Los Angeles in 1966, where he participated in five years of lectures given by Nobel Physics Laureate Richard Feynman at the Hughes Research Labs, now HRL Laboratories, here in Malibu. John has now made his fascinating lecture notes available free to the public online at thehugheslectures.info and joins us today to talk about the Feynman lectures and how they affected him. Welcome to the HRL podcast, Mr. John Neer. Thanks, Sean. I appreciate being here. Like I said earlier, it's sort of like having a reunion with nobody you know because <laughs> it was a long time ago when I was here last. So We appreciate you taking your time, some time with us here today. Uh, John, your, uh, the copious notes you took during the Feynman lectures are quite an impressive uh, feat, and the website is fascinating. It, uh, a person could spend hours on it, obviously. <laughs> uh, what I'd like you to do is uh, tell us um, a little bit about uh, the importance of Richard Feynman in your career in life. Well, that goes back more than five decades now, back to the early 60s when I was an undergraduate at Ohio State. At the transition year between sophomore and, and junior, that was when you had to decide to actually settle down and pick your major. I was in physics uh, freshman and sophomore, but I had become somewhat disenchanted with physics. It seemed kind of dry and uninteresting, and I thought maybe electrical engineering or mechanical engineering might be more uh, of my interest. Fortunately, I had a, a guidance counselor at Ohio State, Dr. James Gaines. He was maybe 28, 29, a young professor, and um, he took me under his wing, and he didn't necessarily want me to transfer to an engineering school. And in 63, 64, the Feynman lecture notes or books from uh, Caltech had just been released, and he had copies of them and obviously was fascinated with the content of what Feynman had uh, presented to the undergraduates. And he offered up a special studies program for me for my junior and senior years, essentially a one-on-one. -on -one. Here's the books, go away, read them, um, study them, come back and I'll test you and um, hopefully you'll find these books uh, reactivate an interest in physics and it did. Um, 
I found the books uh, extremely fascinating from uh, all the subject matter that was published in them. Caltech uh, had a major program that they convinced Feynman to actually teach undergraduate, freshman and sophomore. Uh, the material in those books all the way up through uh, quantum mechanics and quantum physics which was very unusual in those days for undergraduates to get into those subject matters. Because it was a challenge in teaching at Caltech and it was going to be a lecture series that had been captured on audio video, um, Caltech was fortunate to get a huge grant from the Ford Foundations for a million dollars, which in 1961 dollars Today, that would be a grant on the order of something like eight to $10 million to produce those three volumes. They were audio, video recorded. They were transcribed by hand, essentially then put into scientific notation, graphic arts, et cetera, put in. And that results in the three red books that uh, Addison Wesley ultimately published and I used as my study books as an undergraduate. So I became Feynmanized at that time um, and also concurrent with 65, 66, when I started into graduate school, um, my girlfriend, Patty, and I were in the discussion phases of getting married. Uh, we were in Ohio. Uh, our desire was to move elsewhere and I wanted to finish my graduate work. And I was fortunate enough in 66 to get an offer from Hughes Aircraft Company on their master fellowship program. That was like our ticket out of town to go um, finish graduate work. The Hughes fellowship program paid for the out-of-state tuition. I went to UCLA, it paid uh, books and a stipend, plus I worked uh, half-time, 20 hours a week. And my first assignment was with the Space and Communications Group in, in El Segundo. When I started at UCLA in the fall of 66, unbeknownst to me at the time, was Feynman was under a consulting contract with Hughes and to lecture here at the labs two hours a week. Uh, typically, it was nine months a year. It was a full year, actually, a couple times it went on into the summer. And I recall, I don't have evidence, that Hughes paid Feynman for the two-hour lectures, preparation and presentation, $1,000 a lecture. Again, $1,966. That's a pretty good consulting fee, and that only is a statement of how important it was to Hughes, the culture, the scientist here at the lab, to be stimulated by a genius Feynman. So my task in 66, 67 initially was to complete my graduate work down at UCLA. And on Monday afternoon, I would have the hard task of driving up here to Malibu to spend two hours with about 25 of the Hughes research scientists 
listen to Feynman lecture on topics that the um, attendees selected. It wasn't Feynman deciding he was going to talk on a certain subject. At the end of a year, he would ask, all right, what do you want me to talk about next? Wow. And when I was here in 66, they had already decided to um, have him talk on astronomy, astrophysics, and cosmology, because pulsars and black holes, they called them black stars at the time, were just being theorized and some preliminary work that maybe they actually were able to see some of these with the observations and observatories on the ground, etc. But Feynman had never taught astronomy, astrophysics, cosmology, but that didn't matter. He was smart enough that he would go bother some of the equivalent um, astrophysicists or cosmologists at um, Caltech, and then he would come into the lecture with a, a three-by-five card, and that would represent what he was going to talk about for the next two hours. Um, what does gravitational collapse mean? How could a black hole exist? What is the origin and how do the elements in stellar formation evolve? And what are all the decay theories and the spallation ideas? And he would start off uh, on the um, blackboard on the left side and he would work his way across to the right side and erase it and come back again and start over. And that wasn't on his three by five card. <laughs> that was his mind. And there would be a number of times he would be in um, a detailed mathematical representation of some deep stellar evolution theory, and he would stop and ponder and look at the wall and look at his equations, and he says, and then he would back up to the beginning of the board. He said, oh, I made a mistake here. And we'd all look at him like, what the hell do you mean you made a mistake? How do you know you made a mistake? Well, I did a far-field expansion theory here on this integral, and it's not giving me the right answer. So here was a genius in process, where he understood the process that the mathematics were not producing the right result. So he was self-correcting himself <laughs> as he was deep dive into the mathematics, because he knew that it wasn't leading him to the right physical output. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was vignettes like that that I think made the strong impression, how do you capture a genius in work? How is it that somebody can be so intuitive to the physics to know that the mathematics which is the language of physics, is not giving them the right interpretation. That experience cast an interesting perspective on what I was hearing from the professors at UCLA <laughs> in their teaching of quantum mechanics, for example, where they were teaching 
the math, not the physics. The inverse of that was what Feynman taught, the physics. And the mathematics is only the language of physics. If you spend more time working on the language side, you miss the physics, which only sort of demonstrated that, well, that's not to belittle the, the physics professors at, at UCLA, but it only showed in somewhat stark contrast what a teacher of true physics is all about. It's about the physics. Yes, you can be a mathematician, and there are many <laughs> excellent examples of that, but mathematics without a hardcore understanding of sort of the root principles in physics is, is a little bit wry. And I think that's what led me to that fork in the road in between my sophomore and junior year was, as Yogi Berra said, get to the fork in the road, take it. <laughs> well, <laughs> how do I know without knowing that I took one, which is the better path? And at that point, intuition tends to take over. I was just fortunate, as I said, I had a professor who was particularly interested in what I, as an individual, was doing. And any individual who is fortunate enough to have one person, <laughs> it does make a difference. One person can have a significant change in direction to your own personal um, education and your professional development and as, as a person. So my experience with the notes was a sufficiently enriching one <laughs> that I found going beyond my master's degree was probably not necessary. I was getting over five years of advanced degree <laughs> unrecognized with Feynman and that the work at Hughes Aircraft in the space and communications area, the uh, early days of Intelsat, uh, Harold Rosen, Harold just recently passed away. Harold was the uh, person behind Syncom. Right. And um, I had the pleasure of working with Hal on Intelsat 4 and um, a, a great person. But I continued up at the labs um, for the next five years, 66 to 71, after the cosmology and astrophysics, um, the group here wanted him to go back through his Feynman lectures in physics, the first three volumes. So in my notes, volume two and three are probably a, a souped up version of his courses to the Caltech people, uh, undergraduates, because he knew he was teaching, he was talking to senior scientists up here, people with PhDs. So he obviously wasn't interested in talking down to them. So I would say that the books two and three are my notes are somewhat like volumes two and three, actually all three of them. Um, a little bit on steroids. And I went to some trouble in my own note of taking to reference back to the original volumes, which I had by my side. So I would reference um, 
a chapter in the Red Books that he was now dealing with. So it makes the reader of the notes a little bit more um, understanding and if they want to chase it back to the original volumes. So those two volumes, two and three, represent um, an equivalent of the three volumes that he published in early 60s. Then there was a somewhat unusual turn on volume four into microbiology. Now Feynman never studied microbiology, um, kind of like cosmology or astrophysics. But there were some biophysicists at uh, Caltech who, one of them had been a quantum physicist, and I can't remember his name offhand, but apparently he and Feynman got talking about how DNA encoding and how the process of genetics worked. And so he started in on trying to give lectures on microbiology. <laughs> After a while, it became a bit too frustrating because he ended up having to actually spend more time um, physically learning the material that he was going to talk to. And so... Um, after maybe only three or four months, he finally bailed out and said, I'm sorry, I can't, <laughs> I can't keep doing this. So the fifth volume is an interesting one because it's on math physics. And he regretted his original uh, lectures at Caltech because the biggest criticism of the freshman and sophomore were that they didn't understand the math. And Feynman, in his efforts to talk through the physics, kind of tacitly assumed that the students would learn or understand the math, the language. That wasn't necessarily the case. So volume five is somewhat like a missing volume that should have been attached to the first three as a precursor and a warm-up for what he ended up doing in the three volumes. So it's a good summary of how Feynman looked at mathematics as a tool, not as an answer to explain physics. One interesting little side story, he, he always tried to trick him, he, he tried to come up with clever, easy ways to manipulate the mathematics that would allow him to glide through faster, very complex phenomenon, beta decay, and all sorts of somewhat esoteric processes. And he, was t he told a story of um, when he was in the Manhattan Project down at Los Altos, Los Alamos. <laughs> Some guy came in and wanted to know what the what the outcome of this mathematical series of beta decay or some sort of nuclear reaction, and it was some sort of closed form expansion that I guess you could run out and the answer might be some numeric value like pi over three or something. And he asked the guy, well, how accurate do you want it? And the guy said, oh, I don't need a very accurate, maybe only 10%. And the answer, he's, <laughs> He looked up at him and he says, the answer is 1.22 or something. And the guy says, now how do you know that? I said, well, you only knew it. You only wanted the answer to about 10%. So it's, it was like 1 over 1 plus n squared. 
So I did one over one plus n squared plus one over one plus two squared. And after that, the answer is 10%. So it was a good example of you can be over <laughs> indulgent in the mathematical precision to a process that you only need to an imprecise level. <laughs> and I found over my career in engineering and satellite stuff with uh, Hughes and others, it was always a good lesson to challenge the engineers who would run a computer model and print out answers to five or 10 decimal points when I was asking, well, you have to the 10% point. Well, I don't know. I mean, does it feel like the right answer? I mean, I don't know how many. So those five years were um, uh, well spent. Um, as I said, over 400 hours of lectures here at the labs over five years and very rewarding. It was a sharp group of people. Uh, the most memorable one was Dr. Robert Forward. He's a science writer, but Dr. Forward always come into the session with uh, his bow tie on, and he was a sharp guy. He could operate at close to Feynman's level, but it was a very privileged opportunity to be in a small group of very sharp people here at the lab, 25 or so, 30. It would vary a little bit, but that's probably about what it averaged, and the company was paying for it, so... It was, a, it was a very strong rounding out of my own educational career and set me on a path that I tended to uh, attribute a lot to Feynman. And one of his more memorable books that I often refer to is, What Do You Care What Other People Think? Which is a nice thought process that if you want to get out of the box, don't start from in the box and your people here operate at the edge of the box or out of the box because they're challenging conventional wisdom and the way we do things or have thought about things. And I think that's the refreshing quality that uh, the labs here continues. I saw it on the tour a little while ago and most importantly, the enthusiasm of some of the scientists and engineers that are working on stuff that's really far out. So my notes went online about three years ago, thanks to my son, Tom, who suggested, Dad, get these things out. <laughs> I was always worried about losing the hard copy mm -hmm. to sure. a fire or something or a flood or whatever. So I took time to scan them and put them out online. As it stands today, after about three years, um, over 90,000 visitors have come to the site from over 185 countries around the world. Wow. That in and of itself is sufficient evidence that it was worth <laughs> the time spent into putting them out into the public domain free of charge. My only caveat on the notes was, I don't want anybody to use these for any commercial benefit because that isn't why I spent all the time to create them. And I don't think Feynman would be interested in 
charging for his presentations, which, by the way, is why I didn't use his name in the website. Mm. I quite honestly didn't want to get into a situation where there was a copywriting issue. This was my recreation of his presentation, and I didn't want to necessarily have the family um, become, or Caltech get involved in, so that's why I just referred to them as, as the Hughes Lecture Series, and that's the way they are, and that's the way they're going to stay, and um, so it's been rewarding that uh, it's aroused and continues to motivate people from all over the world that there is value in lectures given now <laughs> 50 years ago and more. Sure, sure. That's a long summary of how we got to where we are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. That's terrific. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your, your note-taking process. The, let's talk first about how, uh, why you were um, motivated to take such copious notes. And then uh, you mentioned to me how you, you turned it in, into sort of a study method for retaining the, the material. You know, because I had studied with the lecture note or the, the Feynman lectures in physics from Caltech, I was impressed with the fact that they actually caught and captured a lot of his demeanor and his presentation style. And I felt that that was almost important as the content of the specific lecture and why I went to some effort to try to recreate as closely as I could based on very rapid raw notes that came out of the two-hour lecture into the retranscribed hand notes of five to six or seven hours. Because I thought that it was his mental process that I, I needed to recreate his thinking pattern and his commentary along the way and his stylistic way of dealing with material on the board that he saw and wasn't right. And the contents of the notes that I have online admittedly are, well, they're hand notes for one, so there are misspellings and other syntactical errors and content of how I wrote it down. I was concerned with trying to get the actual representation of the uh, mathematics. The combination of the words and the mathematics provides at least a platform for an enterprising student <laughs> to pick up, read through, know when the syntax or misspellings were there and jump over them, but then to go into the mathematics and see if they can follow through the representation that I wrote down. And I'm certain there are mistakes in those um, transcriptions or reconstructions of the mathematics. But to a certain extent, that's the interesting teaching aspect of the notes which I have found over the past three years, there are times when on one day I might get 
three, four, five thousand hits. And what I've associated that with, and I had some IP <laughs> triggers, it was like a university professor probably stumbled across them, found them, and challenged his students, now go get these notes, and we're going to use those as uh, a work project, as an example. And so it's pretty clear that uh, that kind of use is exactly what I had in mind. I was interested in converting them with latex and the scientific notation and make them dressed up a bit. Uh, that required more time and more money. <laughs> and if they're too pristine, the student might not be interested to see where they're wrong <laughs> and be challenged to find out where they are wrong and correct them yourself. So I think there's enough clarity in the notes that that latter requirement is, is satisfied and maybe over time we'll find out if we can put them into a better form that could be editable and added to and kind of like a little Wikipedia kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, on that, another little interesting vignette on the cosmology and astronomy. I knew that many of the theories and comments and, uh, and lectures had been outdated by discoveries like with Hubble, for example, uh, black holes. Um, quasars. And so I sent a copy to a high school um, schoolmate my senior year in physics and asked his opinion on what he thought of him. It turns out that that individual is Dr. George Smoot, who won the Nobel Prize in physics in 2006 for the COBE um, program and the, the, quote, discovery of the anisotropic nature of the back, cosmic background radiation. Oh, right, right. Um, all earlier theories said that the, <laughs> the Big Bang was just a blank. <laughs> there wasn't any clumps out there that would represent temperature differences where ultimately galaxies would start to form. And if, if that background radiation wasn't anisotropic, none of us would be here. And there seemed to be evidence that it must be there. His experiment with the COBE satellite that NASA Goddard uh, put together, um, the two, the investigator from NASA and, and George uh, shared the um, Nobel Prize in physics for that discovery. Uh, George donated his 750000 to an educational fund up near Berkeley. Where, you know, anyway, George said um, it would be good to put in some of the uh, more recent discoveries. And so when I was copying them, I went to the website and added in some of the new discoveries when Feynman would come to a certain topic. That's kind of updating periodically would be a useful tool um, and challenge new scientists and exploration people to 
take the basic theories that he was working with and, and bring them up to date a little bit. At any rate, um, it was the learning process in my own case that led me to spend those hours transcribing it. Was, was uh, Feynman's, were his, were his uh, lectures on, the, on uh, astrophysics what prompted you to go into uh, space in your own work? No, not really. Um, like many things that happen in life, you just somewhat stumble into them. Um, in college, I wasn't, I mean, Sputnik went up and you know, I was 14 and riding a motor scooter around Ohio and not thinking about, gee, I think I want to be a rocket scientist or a whatever. It was really the opportunity that Hughes gave with the fellowship program, and it was going to be a rotation program. That was really good. The way they structured it was you would get a six-month assignment to work in a certain area, and then you could elect to go to another, uh, like Culver City or El Segundo or Canoga Park, um, Fullerton. And I just, again, stumbled into a good set of activities in the space and communications group and ended up with uh, uh, Tony Iarillo, Hal Rosen. They were all working on satellites, and that was pretty fascinating. And so it became clear that the interest was in those areas, and I, I just chose to stay there. I didn't do any rotation. Um, I rotated within the space and comm group, but I didn't rotate out of it, which was an opportunity that uh, Hughes gave. I mean, it's a great program. It's something that, unfortunately, we need to bring back. You know, when you, it costs you 100 to 150,000 for a master's degree anywhere. So I said, it's like winning the lottery. I didn't pay a nickel for my graduate degree because at that time in the mid 60s, people were needing to get into the, uh, quote, aerospace industry, and Hughes was um, more than uh, <laughs> willing to invest in the people and bring, it, uh, bring you in. A lot of people came in in the mid to late 60s from around the country, and the results of that is history with Hughes Aircraft Company and Space and Comm, and communications and national security satellites that, uh, you know, is a tremendous legacy, so. Hmm. Uh, so what you, th this plays into a question I have. Uh, what is your hope for the future of, of science and technology? Well, my first hope is that we are able to stimulate the educational process challenge young people to get into the world of science, mathematics. Um, that was quite frankly my motivation for putting the notes out in, in my own way without making a financial investment in grants and trying to help subsidize. I knew what it meant 
to me personally and ultimately to industry, whether it's communication technology around the world or national security satellites that, you know, managed to carry us through the Cold War. You know, if you don't know what the threat is, you don't know how to manage yourself through it. And the greatest tribute to associates through the NRO that I was involved with now for almost 50 years, what price is peace and not having to blown up the world, right? Right. How many billions of dollars is it worth to still have a world? <laughs> right. I mean, I don't know how to monetize the investment and we complain about, well, it costs too much. It costs too much for what? The one thing I do know and what is so intellectually interesting at the Hughes Labs, what will dominate this century is the nanoscience and technology. That's the cutting edge. That's the industrial revolution. It's the scientific revolution. I mean, I watched some of your guys pouring liquid on the floor and making something out of it by shining lights onto it. <laughs> right. Where the hell did that come from? <laughs> what do you do with that stuff? You know, or put this helmet on and I'm going to tell your brain to do something. <laughs> but we do not challenge our children. And... 50 years from now, what's going to be important to their lives is, is an understanding at a very fundamental level of how the world works. And it doesn't work at, at a macro scale. It begins down at the atomic scale. And if you don't understand how to work down in that regime, how to manipulate atoms as Feynman said in 1959, his seminal paper, I encourage everybody to read, there's plenty of room at the bottom. And what he meant clearly by that was when you get all the way down to the atomic level and you start to organize atoms into molecules and get learn how to make them behave, kind of like children, you know, how do you tell them to sit still in the church for long enough and not get up and run away and, oh, why are they over there? And... <laughs> They don't have the same control regime that children do. Uh, I think you've answered all my questions. Is there anything else you wanted to say? Well, at the beginning, I appreciated, I just wanted to thank you, Sean, and Dr. Albright, Bill Carter, the folks that I went around on the tour. This is a far different place in its, what it's doing, not in the people that are doing it. The people here, in what I saw in the enthusiasm and that we were talking about their projects, is what I saw 50 years ago. That tribal behavior <laughs> is fundamental <laughs> to the nature of the labs. And I'm gratified to see it's here, and while some of the work is clearly different, times are different <laughs> 50 years. 
and I'm encouraged by some of the technology and the science that is on the training out here in your labs. So I do appreciate the invitation to come. Um, I'm not here to overtly push my uh, Feynman lecture notes. They are available to those who are interested in learning and understanding Feynman more. And that was, as I said, part of my effort was to capture Feynman more so than even his the specific lecture. Because the way he teaches science is enthusiastic. And it is that enthusiasm for science, nature, etc., that is being exhibited here. And why I said <laughs> that once the character of the lab was established in the 50s and 60s, it lives on. It's embodied in that spirit. And that's what's um, kind of the most rewarding takeaway. Somebody wrote in one of my comments back that what I see in your notes is a style of paying attention to a lecturer. <laughs> <laughs> that rather than just sort of going to a lecture and taking a few notes and walking away and going to the next one, there's an absorption rate that if you're really interested in the topic or the material, it does really require an investment in your own time to go back through. It's a forced <laughs> memory process is basically what it is. And once, once that happens then and you get into it, it becomes easier. But Feynman in his later years, late 70s, early 80s, became more interested in computer sciences and that's how he got in a bit to the quantum computing process because he knew if you were going to manipulate atoms, you had to have a, at the quantum level, you, by definition, had to have a quantum computer to deal with quantum processes. So it was logically consistent that it must be true that if I think I can manipulate atoms, I must be able to manipulate a computer that <laughs> operates in that domain. Right, so it's right. that kind of equivalence theory that uh, led him to kind of push into the early 80s into the quantum computing world. He's definitely credited as one of the progenitors of the idea of a quantum computer. Well, it's just is another part of his legacy and a derivative of the nanotechnology speech he gave in 59. Right. I just read that again this morning after no, you I sent me a copy of it. No, it's, it's a seminal paper. I mean, sometimes we think we're so far ahead and somebody... You know, it's astonishing of, how much he got right in that paper. It is, <laughs> but, but that's because he could intuitively feel how atoms jump around and do things, and and that's what I mean. That's the difference. It it isn't a mathematical expression. It's it's feeling the physics that that is the motivating force that he had and. He had an innate ability to uh, sense things that 
you know, you, you would hard to r relate to, but it's fascinating. And I, I, I know the value in retrospect of being in the presence of a genius for 400 hours. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's saturated bombing. <laughs> and if, if 10% of it stuck, <laughs> I'd be doing okay. Right. So. Well, it sounds like that period that, that <laughs> HRL Labs is the coolest place to be in LA for a while. It was. It was. A, <laughs> here I was, 23, driving down Pacific Coast Highway, roughing it in Malibu, and <laughs> listening to a genius for five years. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> those, those were the days. Right? <laughs> 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 That's why I say it's it's like a reunion coming back and nobody's here. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Well, we appreciate you coming, and we really loved having you. I'm going, to re I'm going to repeat your website again. <laughs> it's www.thehugheslectures.info for people who would like to uh, experience the, the just really impressive uh, copious notes that you took. And, and, the, and the site is, is uh, well worth visiting. It's, a, it's a, a treasure trove, really. Thanks again, John. I appreciate it. John, it was a, really a pleasure. Absolutely a delight. HRL's History of the Future podcast is a science-related interview program presented by HRL Laboratories in Malibu, California. Opinions expressed by podcast guests are not necessarily those of HRL Laboratories, LLC. For more information, contact us at hrl.com.